I am Ben Doc Askins, the psychedelic science war storyteller, and this is the Anti-Hero's Journey Podcast. Hey everybody, Doc here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want it to be possible for me to continue to make it, then I'm going to need you to go to my store at antiheroesjourney.com and buy my audiobook and my ebook in one of the many translations available, or go to shop and pick out some of my stuff t shirts and hats and pet bandanas and bikinis and scented candles and all sorts of nonsense, all the things you could ever want and never need. And get 10% off with the code, all caps, FRIEND10. Go to antiheroesjourney.com and use the code, all caps, FRIEND10 to get 10% off anything that you could ever want there. I appreciate your support. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. What's up, all you anti-heroes out there? This is Doc Askins back with another Q5 podcast episode. I've got a special guest. With me today, Heather R. King serves as a certified preparation and integration coach for Heroic Hearts Project and SEA Integration. She possesses a unique blend of discipline and communication skills, enabling her to create a safe and supportive environment for clients, empowering them on their paths to recovery, growth, and a renewed sense of purpose. She served in the U.S. Air Force As a crew chief on B-1s and C-130s, she had multiple deployments to Diego Garcia, Guam, and Al-Udaid in support of Operation Enduring Freedom and the Global War on Terrorism. After earning a MPS in Strategic Public Relations from George Washington University, she went to work for a VA hospital in Tennessee. As a storyteller, Heather saw firsthand the gaps in services for veterans with PTSD. This ignited a passion to make a positive impact in the lives of fellow veterans. Heather has confronted and conquered her own battles with PTSD and alcoholism, ultimately achieving sobriety in 2016. In her journey towards healing, she sought out psychedelic therapy in 2020, and the transformative results inspired her to dedicate her efforts to providing support and resources to veterans looking to explore psychedelic medicines for spiritual and emotional growth. Heather, it's an honor having you on the podcast here. Thank you so much for having me. So we're going to get rolling here. We ask five questions on the Q5 podcast that I like to use for preparation for ketamine-assisted therapy sessions in my clinic. We're not doing any sort of ketamine assistance on this particular podcast, but we're just going to have the conversation like the MAPS value like to say, we are the medicine. So we're going to be the medicine here today. The first question I like to ask everybody is, what's your story? Oh my gosh. You know, it never gets easier getting asked that question. What's your story? You know, cause I, there's multiple stories. There's who I was as a child and in this quest for identity, where that, where that led me. Then there's who I was in the military when my identity was pretty much, you know, told like, this is, this is who you are now. And kind of the, the back and forth of not conforming and fitting into that identity and still searching for identity. And then getting out and wandering around life, still searching for who I am. So that, that, that question, it's just, it's always so interesting because there's so many stories, I guess, you know, 
I don't feel like my story is anything unique or anything that, you know, people haven't, haven't heard before. You know, I came from a single parent home and my, (laughs) it's interesting. My father was, was not in, in my life at all. Didn't want to be, both my parents were stationed at Fort Campbell. When my mom got pregnant, you know, he, he bounced and, and got stationed somewhere else. And my mom was raising me and my brother uh, who were 10 years apart. And she did, God, she did her damnedest. You know, she was, she was a survivor and that's what she did. And that's what she taught us to do. And I learned how to survive. And I was really good at surviving and everything in my life became a story of, of survival. My time in the military was a story of survival and just getting through being on the flight line with men who, you know, some respected me some I was friends with and then the ones that didn't god I mean they really they didn't and then dealing with you know all the things that happened to women that's not unique it happened to me too and it happened on more than one occasion and I think the unique part of that story which is really what has what kind of sent me into a tailspin for years was when it was reported I had a female first sergeant and I'm not, I'm not even the one that brought it to her attention. It was another male NCO who was there and she pulled me, we were deployed. And so she pulled me into her little, her little hut tent and said, uh, Hey, don't be the one to rock the boat, Heather. This is what happens. This is what happens when you drink with the guys. This is what happens when you're one of the only women and you think that you can, you know, be one of the guys like this is what happens. And, you know, don't rock the boat. We've worked so hard to get here. And I internalized all of that. You know, I was, I was very early twenties. I don't, I I don't even think I was 21. Well, I might've been, yeah, I think I might've been 21. And it just, it just rocked, rocked me and, and it stuck with me. And I, I didn't, I didn't know who to trust. I didn't feel like there was any attachment to being a a female. My masculine energy just, I mean, oh man, it thrived after that. (laughs) I like to get rowdy and and it was a way that, that I survived was just to go through this world, you know, very, very masculine. It got to the point where my commander at the time had said, look, you know, we've done everything we can to protect you. You have to go back to the flight line. And I had tried to, I tried to retrain, but it was 2007 and that was an interesting year for all of the military. And there was, I I couldn't go anywhere. So it was either go back to the flight line or get out. And and I chose to get off active duty and I worked on C-130s and the reserves after that. And then my first deployment with my reserve unit was right back with my old unit, (laughs) which was, you know, not a great time. And so ultimately in 2010, like I was, I was done and my drinking just, oh, it just took off. You know, I couldn't, I just could not cope. I could not reintegrate into society. My first job, real job interview. I remember the the guy that was interviewing me, he asked me, you know, why don't you have a degree? And I was like, well, cause I have been deployed <laughs> for, you know, the better part of a a decade, like I couldn't go to school. I had, you know, classes here and classes there, but I didn't have a degree. And he was just like, 
sorry, we're going to, we're going to pass. And so I went to school because I thought that's, you know, what I was supposed to do, get a degree. Like it was just continual search for identity, put me in this box. This is what society says I need to do. And so that's what I did. So I went to school. I found a husband because <laughs> that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> and oddly enough, that marriage did not work out. <laughs> I was drunk and I was angry and God bless him. You know, he tried, he tried. So in, in 2015, after a suicide attempt, I, I decided to come back to the U.S. When I married a soldier, so we went overseas. Oh, I was so convinced. If I just, if I just leave my husband and the life that I was living, I'll stop drinking. Everything will be fine. I'll be home with my family. I'll have support and everything will be fine. Everything was not fine. Everything was, was worse. And I couldn't ever pinpoint like a single reason why there was just all these, all these things, you know, from childhood all the way up to where I was. Finally, it, you know, it, it, it took what it took for me to, to finally get help. You know, my mom had told me for years that I was an alcoholic. People had told me for years I was an alcoholic, but I, I mean, I wore that with a, a badge of honor. Like, yeah, I'm an alcoholic and I will out drink any of these men any day, like put them up against me. Like, let's see what happens. I won't say it on here, but there's a four letter word that I loved, loved to call men. I would never call another woman that word, but I love to call, to, to be drunk and, and a man be in front of me. And then I call him that C word. It just chef's kiss. <laughs> and that's the kind of person, that's the kind of person that I was you know, this, this search for identity and, and power, really. So I didn't, I didn't understand the weight and the gravity of being an alcoholic. And in October 1st, 2016, I walked into an AA meeting and sincerely with all the desperation I could, I said, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. And I haven't taken a drink since. I was so fortunate to have people in AA who really just loved me and I could not figure out why like I hate myself why do you love me and there were some very open-minded people that you know just helped me along the way and part of my amends process was that I had to start taking my medic my medication as prescribed one of the things that I was known to do is I would take all of my meds and I'd start to feel good. And then I'd say, Oh, I don't need them anymore. So I'd toss them and start drinking and then wonder why <laughs> I'm in a pit of hell. So part of my events process was I will take my meds as prescribed. I will go to therapy. I will do the things that, you know, that I'm, I'm asked to do. I'll be a willing participant in my life. And so I did that. And I was, I was so good. I was, I started practicing yoga. I was exercising. I was going to therapy. I was getting sponsored and being and sponsoring other people. Like I was a poster child, right. Of recovery, but I still felt numb. And that's the whole reason that I drank was because I wanted to feel nothing. I wanted to feel numb. And it got to a point where I, I just, 
I realized like I didn't get sober to feel nothing. Like I had made a, a lot of progress, right? Like I made a lot of progress, but I still felt like I wasn't getting deep enough. And, and that's a real kick in the ass, you know, like you want to do the work, you're ready and you're willing to do the work, but it, you just, you can't cause there, you can't feel it. So I remember having the conversation with my doc and we had three separate conversations over the course of a year and a half. The first time I said, Hey, what do you think about me getting off meds? And she's like, mm, we'll see. And I said, okay, fair enough. Let's make a plan. So we go through a couple more months, a couple more sessions. I start to have these feelings in my head and I still don't have language for it. I call it brain zaps. It, it would, it felt like an electrical shock was like going through my head and I would like, I would lose like time and it was brief, but it was, it was like, I was, I was glitching. I could talk to people and, and I would just stop talking. Like the thought is there, but it's not coming out. And I'd try to explain this to her and I'd tell her how scary it was. And she would just say, Heather, we're going to up your medication. You're reaching the shelf life. Or she would switch me to a different medication so I'm having, you know, just chemically, like I know I'm getting, I'm not having a good time. Then she puts me on, on a medication for a disorder that I've, I've never been diagnosed with. It's never been a question. And, and I had a manic episode because I, I've never, like, that's not in my wheelhouse of <laughs> disorders. And, and so at that point, like I really lost any, any trust in her, but I kept doing it. Right because that's what the VA says you have to do. So we, about six months later, we have another conversation and I tell her again, like these, these zaps are getting more intense. I can't, like, I can't do this. Can we take me off all the medication except for my sleep meds? I think if we can get my sleep under control, you know, maybe everything else will, will kind of like taper off. Like if I'm sleeping, I'm not going to be anxious. If I'm having you know, restful sleep and my nightmares and terrors like aren't there, then I won't wake up anxious. Like, and, and I'll have a chance to like really work. And, and she was like, mm -mm. and so I waited a little bit more. And then the third conversation happened in November of 2020. And I asked her once again, and she said, Heather, you are a person who is always going to need medication to function properly. And that felt like a death sentence. And so I came home and I started having conversations with some people. And I said, I'm, I'm going to go off my meds. And I'm going to go off cold turkey. And they were like, terrible idea. <laughs> and I was like, I'm desperate. And so I made some agreements. I said, look, here's the deal. I'm going to go off cold turkey. If you notice that I am like, out of whack before I do. Cause you probably, I won't know. I thrive in chaos. You know what I mean? So you're going to have to tell me, but if you tell me, I'll believe you, I won't fight you and I'll go to the hospital. And so that was the agreement. So mid December, I had stopped taking medication and a friend of mine had called and said, Hey, I want to try to rehab this conversation about 
psilocybin with you because he had tried to get me, who's also a Tillman scholar, he had tried to introduce me to psilocybin in 2016 to help me get sober. And I was like, oh no, abstinence only. I can't put anything in my body that's going to change the way I feel because then I'm doing drugs and I'm finding a loophole. And, and it was just, it was a lot of fear. So he and I had a lot of conversations. I started doing a lot of research. I came across stuff about Bill Wilson and LSD. And then the Al Smith case that is currently like in back in the news because people are trying to overturn the Al Smith case, which he was also a pretty famous AA, and but he used peyote ceremoniously. So I like I'm stumbling across all this literature that shows like there is a relationship between sobriety recovery and psychedelics. So I was willing to do anything at that point. The brain zaps were getting more intense. It was more like it was worse withdrawals than than alcohol. And microdosing didn't do anything for me at all. And I think looking back, like we all agree, it's because I was still so I still had so much medication still in my head. And New Year's Eve I took four and a half grams of mushrooms. Me and my partner both had had four and a half grams. We had like set setting like I was gonna I, I was gonna finally like release, and I cried so much. Not because of anything happened, but because he is he is deep in self reflection, and I don't feel anything at all. There's not a yawn. There's not nothing is breathing. There's nothing. I got nothing. Nothing. And I'm like texting people and I'm like, what's wrong with me? I'm like, I'm really broken. The VA broke me. I'm going to be like this for the rest of my life. And of course, like I plummet, you know, even further down, down the rabbit hole. And then fast forward to, to a couple of months later, it's, it's my birthday. I go to Denver and two friends of mine who cared for me so deeply tried again. And this time it was five and a half grams nothing, nothing at all. So then she goes, okay, I got something else. And she hands me a vape pen full of DMT. She tells me how to do it. She tells me how to breathe. And I am, I am chucking on this pen. Like it is just cannabis, like, (sighs) and she finally like pulls it. And she's like, if you're not there now, like you're not going to be. And then I closed my eyes and I didn't, I didn't see anything, but I felt love, (laughs) like love that I didn't think I had ever felt in my life. Like I wasn't capable of like, oh my God, is this what being a human like really feels like? Like you can feel this. And it was like, I felt my heart for the first time and I could feel that it had been broken. And then there was this whisper that said, she's And it was like somebody grabbed me by the back of my collar and yanked me out violently. And there I was back on the couch, curled up in the fetal position. And I am wrenching and screaming. They're on top of me, holding me like a straitjacket. And it was terrifying to her dogs. And in the moment, it was terrifying to me. But looking back, like what I know now was all of that stuff that I could not reach. I was purging all of that. It took 20 minutes for me to calm down. But when I did, I could finally breathe. And I felt like 15 years of just 
heartache and pain and all the things I had tried to find in therapy and AA, like I felt like it had finally come to the surface for me to, to play with. And since that day, that's what I've been doing is just trying to feel it, to let it pass and, and to let it, let it heal. So since 2020, I've just been on that journey. And and my story now is like, I'm writing it every day. Yeah, (laughs) that's my story. God, what a story. I feel like it's such an honor just to hear it. I don't even want (laughs) to like say anything to mishandle it in any way. It's so beautiful. And you told it so well. Wow. Strategic Navigators reduced my income tax bill by over 50%. These guys save entrepreneurs anywhere from 40 to 60% on their income taxes. Click the link in the description to schedule a call and see what these guys can do for you. If you enjoy paying as much as possible in taxes, then just ignore everything I just said. You are so much more than a survivor. You're so brave. Wow. So I still got four more questions to run through here. Yeah. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm <laughs> but, uh, ready for them. You know, so the, the story piece is about where you've been. And the next question is about where you're going. So what are your intentions moving forward? My intentions have, I think for the first time in my life, are so clear and so simple. I just want to show up authentically. And, and in doing that, it allows me to truly be of service to other people. We all, whatever branch of service we served in, we all have our core values, right? And integrity is in all of them. But I don't think I, integrity and service are in all of them. But I don't think I ever understood what either one of those words really meant. Especially because there's so many things in the military where like, we have this idea of service, but we're voluntold to do everything. You've got mandatory like community service projects and, and stuff like that. So like, are you really being of, of service? And I, and I didn't, you know, it's, it's, it's so ironic that that's our core value, but what we do isn't really service. And so my life today, my intentions are to, to really, to be of service to people. Where are you serving currently? Um, <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> I currently coach for Heroic Hearts Project, and that's such a, a wild and fun ride to be able to be a safe space for people and help prepare them for you know this for this work, and and to be able to hold them when they come out in their home and they're like having to reintegrate and they've had either these you know completely blissful experiences or they've had really challenging ones and they've got all of the emotions that come come with that like being able to be there for somebody like it's the biggest honor I've 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 ever I've ever had and then in my business we only have ketamine in Tennessee they don't do a lot of prep and integration around ketamine cuz why um <laughs> and so I I I try to 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 be a resource for ketamine clinics. If they have somebody, you know, I, I, I try to be there and, and just 
you know, let people know, like, you don't have to go through this alone. Like, you have to sit in the medicine yourself, but like, you don't have to be alone. Give me a quick rundown on the Heroic Hearts Project. Man, oh, there's, I don't know that I can do that quickly. I mean, I really don't. Like, it's, it's, it's so amazing. You know, the bottom line is they, Heroic Hearts Project helps connect veterans to retreats in Mexico and Peru. They mainly work with ayahuasca. And then they also have a partnership with the Hope Project, which is run by a fantastic, amazing woman. And so if a veteran goes to a retreat with Heroic Hearts Project, Hope Project is there to hold space for the spouse. And so there's like this, this family container that, that, gets, that gets created so that people can heal together. And I just, I'm, I'm so partial, like Jesse Gould, if you haven't met him, like he's just, he's a hoot and he's just got a heart of Gould, gold. (laughs) He's just a really heart centered guy that is just, he just wants to help as many people find, you know, their own inner healer so that they can go through the world, you know, as, as they are, as they're meant to be. Yeah. It's. It's good stuff, man. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. You'll have to connect me with Jesse. I think he sounds like an awesome I'd guy. love to. Yeah. Oh, he's anywhere's fun shirts too. Oh yeah. We veterans, we love our shirts, don't we? Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I kind of already asked you the fourth question third, which was it, the fourth question is what are you creating? And you're kind of serving in these, uh, you know, both in your business and then with the Heroic Hearts Project doing this integration work. Uh, do you feel like there are other things that you're creating that you'd like to talk about? In those spaces, one of the things that I, I really want that I'm trying to to create with with other people is... I want veterans who come from marginalized communities to be in this space, but there's, there's a lot of barriers. There's cultural barriers. And, and I'm, I really just want to, to stand here and say like, we're creating spaces for you. Like it's safe. And I, I want to be, I don't know. I want to be, I want to help like bridge those gaps. There's a lot of knowledge that people don't know about, you know, we can talk about how great psychedelics are, but in some communities, like they're not that great. And they were used, you know, in queer communities, they were, LSD was used in conversion therapy. Like, I mean, not a lot of people are going to necessarily be knocking on the door to go do something that was used in their community as a tool of, of control. And then you look at the impact of the war on drugs on black and brown communities and to be able to tell somebody, yeah, it's safe. You can go to Austin, Texas, or you can go to Peru or Mexico and you can go take this medicine and you're not going to go to jail. You're not going to lose your job. Like that's terrifying. And so I really just want to continue creating spaces where we're having those conversations and bringing that to the forefront not in a divisive way, not in a way that says like it's us and them or anything like that, but to really and truly be inclusive, we have to understand the barriers that keep these communities away. God, that's so much insight in such a short period of time you're dropping there. Wow. (laughs) Let me ask you the third question, fourth then. What are you grateful for? I'm grateful for gratitude. Like, I was such an ungrateful little shit. Like. I didn't know, I didn't know how to be grateful. I didn't feel like I had anything to be grateful for. 
And now I'm just, I'm, I'm just grateful that I can feel gratitude. And I have, I have so many instances where I am so overwhelmed with joy and gratitude. Like I'm alive and I live a good life and I, it's a life that I swear I don't think I deserve. And I don't know why, I don't know why I get to do this work on on me not not this work in the world but why do i get to see these parts of me that are broken and fix them but i'm so grateful gratitude is a huge part of my life i have i have friends that we have like a gratitude accountability thing every day like we send we send each other voice memos every morning of these are the five things that i'm grateful for and these are my intentions for the day every day i love that yeah, that's my that's that's my life. It is it's it's not something that I just tell people like this is something that I practice and I'm telling you gratitude is the key to so much. Like it can change your life. It's a superpower. It is. Yeah, it's like uh it's like the thing that opens up that love that you felt maybe felt like was for the first time and now you kind of get to distribute it with that just voice memos, right? It's just voice memos. It's, it's just voice memos. But it's so much more. Yeah. Like I have the ability, like I have, I'm, technology sucks sometimes, but in my hand, I have an astronaut on a dinosaur, but uh, in my hand, I have a device that I can communicate to a friend who's in Boston in real time. And I can hear his voice and he can hear my voice and we can like talk about how much, even if it's a bad day, like I'm grateful that it's shitty outside, but I'm awake enough to be able to say that. Yeah. I have a super computer in my pocket. And the only real question is, will I use it for good or for awesome? (laughs) I like that. All right. We're, uh, we're coming around to the fifth and final question. Who are you really? I don't know. I feel like this in, in the first question go hand in hand. And when I saw the questions like that's really what I was thinking is like there it's it's almost it's almost the same question but not you know I I there's versions of me right like there's you know my ex-husband will he has a version of me and and that version is correct like in in his mind and in that period of time like his version of me is absolutely correct my kids have a version of me and you know, everybody who's met me has a version of me and, and, and those things are true. And that is who I am, who I've been, who I can be. I think about this question a lot because there's, there's this idea of, you know, I was always taught that I'm not, I'm not who I think I am. I'm not who I say I am. I am what I do. And, and that's been really powerful for me because if you ask me who I think I am, I'll, I'll tell you, and it's probably not that positive. I like so many people, I have imposter syndrome and I struggle to wonder like, am I a good enough mom? Am I a good enough daughter? Am I a good enough friend? Am I a good enough coach? Am I good enough? All the things, right. But despite what I think about myself and what I feel about myself, sometimes the thing that I do continuously is I show up and I'm honest. Like, you know what you're going to get with me. If I'm having a bad day, I'll tell you. 
I won't hold you hostage, right? Like I won't like try to make anything consume you, but I'm honest. If I'm having a good time, you know, I'll tell you. And I think that that's, I guess that's who I am. I'm, I'm the person who shows up authentically and that's, that's what I do. And if I can't be authentic, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, this is like, you're not getting all of me. Most of the time though, I won't even show up. Like if I feel like it's a question of whether or not I can be me or not, like I've had to not be me for so long that I'm not going to show up any other way. (laughs) This is the way. Yeah, this is, oh God, such a good show, right? Such a good show. So many life lessons, so many life lessons. Star Wars, man, you, they, they knew it. They knew all of the things, like they knew all the things. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) It's brilliant. All right. It's brilliant. Well, that's, that's the five questions, Heather King. Are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us? Man, final thoughts. Yeah. I guess if there was anything that I, I would want, you know, to leave people with, it's, it's this idea that you know, we hear all the time, hurt people, hurt people. And it's so true, right? And it's, and it's, it's more than a cliche. It's, it's really, when you can understand that, it's really a good place to start with compassion. When you can understand that somebody, yes, somebody did something and it was awful and it hurt and you feel betrayed. And why would they do this to me? You go back and you look and you see their hurt and their inability and their only thing that they know how to do is survive, right? Like that hurt people, hurt people is so deep. It's a good starting place for compassion. But the thing that I don't think that we talk about enough, especially in this space, is that healed people will heal people. And and that's... Did you coin that? I've never heard that before, but I like that a lot. <laughs> that's why I'm here is like, When I look at my life, the first person to ever hold me in love was my counselor at the vet center, a guy named Don McCaslin. Uh, He runs his own private practice now called Warrior Elder Counseling. And before I ever got sober, I remember telling him, I've survived my entire life. I just want to know how to live. Like just one day, I'd give anything to just live one day. And he was the first person that told me that I can heal. He was a combat vet. Like he was just a, he was a good dude and he left the VA and I'm so glad that he did because he ended up becoming like one of my best friends and confidants over, you know, over almost a decade. And then, you know, the friends that I had that have introduced, that introduced me to psychedelic medicine, they held me with so much care and love and compassion. And then, my first coach in this space, her name's Margie Groob. Oh God, she's done so much work. And because of all the work that she's done, she was able to help me do my work. And she held me with zero judgment and lots of love and so much compassion. So all these people that are out there doing the work, they've made it to where I do the work for me and now I get to hold that space for other people to do their work. And that, that is more powerful than hurting people. And that's why it's so important that 
that's why prep and integration is so important, right? Like if you want to really get the best out of this experience, you have to do the work and the work continues for a lifetime, but you're going to, you're going to help people along the way, whether you choose to like work in psychedelics or not, like just the fact that you are healing yourself, you're going to heal people around you. That was one of the first things that I learned in, in, in AA and I didn't believe it. I thought I had done so much damage with my kids and my family. And today, like my son was in a terrible motorcycle accident in December and I had to move from Tennessee to Georgia to take care of him. He was 22 years old in the hospital for two weeks, blood transfusion, hardware in all of his body, couldn't walk. And he wanted me there. And he trusted me and he let me see him go through all of the things that a 22-year-old kid goes through when their whole entire life is upended. And I could have never imagined our relationship would be what it is today. I mean, we've always been close, but you know, I was I wasn't there for a lot of things emotionally that I should have been. And I taught him I taught him how to survive. And now he's learning how to live because I learned how to live. Like the ripple effects are are so powerful and and that's that's the balance man like we really can change we can change the world and like i don't mean that in like this hippie sense of the world like michael jackson and friends we are the world but in those ripple effects man like you'll just want to stop doing harm to other people heather king embodying the archetype <laughs> that healed people heal people Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity and, and, and your time. Like this is this has been one of this has been one of my favorite experiences. Oh, it's absolutely been my honor. Doc out. <laughs>